0: Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Pixis. Located in Lafayette, Colorado, they are the PTSA experts since 2012. Pixis offers solutions for conveniently measuring PTSA, turbidity, pH, conductivity, corrosion, and ultrasonic and pressure-based liquid level sensing. As a water treatment professional, you need to know what's in your system, and you need to be confident that what you are using to test gives you solid results. Pixis offers second to none metering technology that compensates for color and turbidity, giving you peace of mind that your result is accurate and dependable every time you run a test. Visit them online by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Pixis, that's P-Y-X-I-S, to see their full line of water treatment products. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we scale up on our knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, the host of Scaling Up H2O. And folks, I have to tell you, 2021 is off to an interesting start. All of that said, I hope you enjoyed the very first episode of the year where I was explaining how I do my planning, how I look at the year, and I start putting important dates on the calendar so I can plan around those items. And there's so much that we do on a day-to-day basis that forces us to stay where we are And what I want you to get in the habit of doing this year, if you're not already, is start scheduling time with yourself. Start scheduling time to do the things that are going to drive you beyond what you do on the day-to-day. This will force you to challenge what you know. This will challenge you to think differently. This will challenge you to grow. But a lot of times when we schedule time for ourselves, that is the very thing that we are willing to give up first when something else comes up. I explained on that very first episode, it's okay to change your plans when you are changing them to a bigger yes. But most people say yes in the moment because let's face it, it feels good to say yes. But as we learned in the seven habits of highly effective people, when we say yes to something, we are always inherently saying no to something else. So we can never let ourselves say yes to something that is less important than what we already had on our plan. So, with that in mind, what I want to do is I want to get you teed up for some things coming up in the year of 21. So, first off, AWT. AWT is the Association of Water Technologies, and one of the great honors that I have is serving on the education committee and being one of the trainers at the technical training events. Now, unfortunately, we were only able to do one last year. We had to cancel the other one and we didn't know what we were going to do this year. So what I'm getting ready to tell you is tentative. So tentatively, mark your calendars for May 5th through 8th. That's going to be in Annapolis, Maryland, and we are going to do our technical training. Instead of having two seminars like we do every year, it's just going to be one. Now, the reason it's tentative, because we don't know what's going to happen between now and May, and we need to make sure we're staying within guidelines and people feel good about coming to that venue. So stay tuned for more information about that but if you do want to come go ahead and right now block out the time between May 5th and May 8th now back in August we had Legionella Awareness Month the reason I did that because the NSF normally holds their Legionella conference in the month of August well with everything going on last year they weren't able to hold that during August so they were going to hold it this month on the 20th. So for all of you that were geared up to go to the Legionella Conference January 20th, that has been pushed back and they're now going to do it in August. They're going to do it via virtual convention. So if you want information about that, you can go to our show notes page and we've got a link that takes you directly to all the information you wanted to know about the Legionella Conference. Now, for those of you that have not listened to the episodes that we did last August, that's episodes 150 through 153. We took the entire month to discuss the topic of Legionella and try to enhance the knowledge of all the people out there that are dealing with water and come in contact with customers that have to deal with Legionella. So I hope you enjoyed those. If you haven't listened to them, I urge you to go back and listen to them. I think you will be glad that you did. And of course, with all of this uncertainty going on, it's been really difficult to get in rooms with our fellow water treaters. So AWT and the Scaling Up H2O podcast staff got together and we decided that we were gonna do our best to try to accommodate getting people together on a virtual platform. So the last couple of months we have been doing a hang where at 6 p.m. Eastern time, everybody logs on to a Zoom call. I prep you with some information and then I quickly put you into breakout rooms, small breakout rooms so you can meet new people and talk about things that you want to talk about. So thank you for all the people that have attended those. And if you want to attend the next one, you can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang. And by the way, that's going to be on February 11th, starting at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Folks, that's just going to be an hour. So you can schedule before and after it. One of my goals is always to start on time and always to end on time. Speaking of things that we are doing in conjunction with the Association of Water Technologies, the Rising Tide Mastermind regularly brings on speakers to members of the group to help them with things in business. Now, unfortunately, with all the stuff going on, AWT has decided not to have the Business Owners Conference like they do every first quarter. And they're going to do it the first day of the convention this year. So if you're planning on going to the convention, you might want to plan a day earlier so you can attend the business owners conference. But what we did, we got together with AWT and we said, hey, how can we help? Because I know people are excited about coming to this business owners conference. They get great information. We already have speakers lined up. What if we invite Business owners into the speakers that we have for the mastermind. And AWT thought that was a great idea. So, if that sounds interesting to you, and if you want to know more information about it, you can go on our webpage, scalinguph2o.com forward slash business, and you will see that we are putting on four business webinars over the year. And you're probably wondering what we're going to be talking about. Well, on January 26th, We are inviting friend of show, John Fenton, and he was on episode 167, and John calls himself the CEO Sensei. I met John when I was doing my TED Talk, and he went before me, and just a phenomenal speaker, a heck of a guy, lots of business experience. So, John's going to be talking about the five myths about great leadership. Again. I highly recommend if you are running a business, you tune in for that. That's going to be at 11 o'clock Eastern time to 1 p.m. So it's right over lunch. These webinar series are going to have the format where we're going to have information that the speaker gives us. And then we're going to have an activity that we're going to work on with the speaker's help. And then we're going to come back together and John's going to leave us with some very specific handles that we can work on in our businesses that very day. So, that's going to be the format of all of these business series webinars. The next one's going to be on March 26th, where my good friend, Tim Fulton, Tim's been my business coach for many, many years. He's going to come talk to us about smart growth and how to determine how our business is ready for growth. A lot of people think, oh, I can just sell, 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 but you can actually grow yourself out of business. And I remember the first time that I heard that, I thought that was the weirdest concept, but if you think about all the things you need in business in order to be able to grow, you really can grow too fast. So Tim's gonna make sure that we have the tools to measure how we should be growing. And if that's not fast enough for us, he will let us know what we can do to ramp those items up. Again, that's going to be on March 26th. On May 28th, we're having Adam Lean come back. And Adam is going to speak on how to improve the revenue and profitability of our business in 30 days. He's gonna give us some tools that we can work on. He's gonna talk about numbers that we need to know as business owners to see where our company is and navigate where our company is going. And finally, on October 29th, we're gonna have Michael Wardy, and he is going to be talking about options for owners who are ready for the next chapter of their business. So, so much for everybody. One of the things that we as business owners, as technicians, as people, We have a blind spot to what we don't know we don't know. And as I started out in the top of the show, this allows us, these things, scheduling for these things allow us to put ourselves in situations where we can start to uncover some of those items that we don't know. It can also help enhance the items that we do know. Maybe we can find a new or better way of doing things So I hope you were making notes on your calendar, but if you weren't, you can pick up all of those dates, all of those items by going to scalinguph2o.com. Well, Nation, as you know, this is one of my favorite shows. And Whenever I talk about one of my favorite shows, I'm always talking about answering questions from you the Scaling Up Nation. So I went into the Scaling Up Nation mailbag and I picked out a few questions and those are the questions that we're going to talk about on the show. So all these questions came from people that wrote in. You have heard me before play people's voices on the air that have asked me questions. So if you're wondering how people got their questions to me, I am going to solve that mystery. It's very easy. You can go to scalinguph2o.com, go to our show ideas page, and you can leave me a comment there. Also, there'll be a pop-up, and if you wanna record your voice asking me your question, you can simply record your voicemail. That will get emailed to my team, and we will get that on the air answering your question. Now, all these questions actually came via typed response. So the first one is, how do you ensure you have the best result from your sample? Well, I know we've talked about this before. I've done various shows on how to make sure you're doing proper testing, what some issues are. Maybe I wasn't specific enough. So, I'm going to be very clear in what I think you should do in order to have the best result from your sample. And I even want to break that question down a little bit because I think the question is, how do you know you can trust your sample? Isn't that really what this person is asking? So the things that you need to think of are how do you eliminate variables that could cause issues? Now, here are the top ones that came to mind when I read this question. One, you need to make sure you have a representative sample. I know personally where people have been having problems with, testing and I'll go in and I'll watch them draw their sample, they don't flush whatever line or the bottle that they're using enough. I remember one account that I would service and the engineers did a great job, the on-site people did a great job doing their on-site testing, but their testing never lined up to what I got. Now, this was the most beautiful mechanical room you have ever seen. You could eat off the floor. The engineers there were so incredibly proud of this mechanical room. In fact, it was featured in a magazine here in Atlanta. So, they took the same pride in their testing. They knew how to run their test, but they were making a big mistake every time they ran their test. So let me back up. They had a testing station that was equally as clean and beautiful as their mechanical room. Had its own setup, had its own cabinets, had good lighting, had a sink with a drain. That's a water treaters dream, right? And a a place to run all of your tests. Well, that wasn't in a location that was very close to where the sample was getting drawn from. I wanna say that they piped probably about 150 feet of pipe from where the sample was being taken from the system over to the sink where they were drawing the sample. And when they would draw the sample, they would simply turn it on, draw their sample, turn it off. Well, folks, there is no way that all the old water that was in that pipe from the last time they sampled flushed out of that piping and we had new representative system water in that pipe. So, that's where they were going wrong. And because it was so long, it took forever for that pipe to flush all the way out. And I actually proved it to them because the water was in that pipe for so long, the iron was a lot higher than it should have been. So we tested the iron right when we turned that sample pipe on, and then we let it flow. it It was a while, folks. It was a lot longer than any reasonable person would wait for a sample. So essentially, I tested the system at another location where I could get a good representative sample, and we just waited until that sample tested the same as what I got in the system sample. So what they ended up doing is they abandoned that piping and they actually went to the source to grab their sample. So all of that to set up, and hopefully that drew a really good picture in your mind, that just because you have a valve coming out of a piece of pipe and it does have your system water, it doesn't mean it's the most representative sample. Now that being said, let's say that you are testing from the same site each and every time you go to the system and you know it's a good representative sample. It's not a bad idea to go to a different location every now and then just to be sure. So my top answer to that is make sure you have a representative sample. Make sure what you're testing is actually with the water that's in the system. The next thing is cool your sample. If you get into the test procedures, you will see that most of our tests have to be room temperature. And of course I'm talking about boilers and I truly, truly wish for all of you that you will only encounter boilers with sample coolers on them. But I know from experience that's not going to be the case. So that means you have to be careful when you take your sample so you don't get burned. You need to make sure you have a representative sample. You need to rinse your sample bottle out and then you need to cool your sample. So again, as I've said on previous episodes, make sure that you have a good cool sample because your reagents, some of them, they will not work in higher temperatures. And you're doing all the same work and you're not getting the correct results. My next tip would be make sure you're using good reagents. Now, most of the manufacturers are putting expiration dates on their reagents to ensure that you have a reagent that's within its proper shelf life. Well, let's explore that a little bit. That's on a shelf. Shelf implies room temperature. If you're keeping your test kit in a hot or cold car, folks, you could be damaging your reagents. If you're not taking care of the tips that your reagents are in, or you're allowing other things to enter the bottles, either by touching the tips or the reagent caps to something that will contaminate the reagent, all those things are going to damage the reagent. So you need to have good, clean, pristine reagents. You need to have faith that your reagents are going to do what they need to do. Now, there's no guesswork to this. Every manufacturer tells you how to properly store them. And we've got such good representation when it comes to the test kit market, with the Association of Water Technologies and all the other organizations that listen to this podcast. So if you ever have any question about your reagent, if it's good, if it's bad, how can you ensure that it's going to stay good for as long as possible? Reach out to your supplier and they will be a wealth of information for that. Another thing on reagents that I'll add is there's nothing wrong with adding extra color indicator. So a lot of tests have a color indicator that change from one color to another when we hit the endpoint. And most of those color indicators are just that color indicators. So if it says add three drops, you can add six, You can add 10. You can get a really dark color change where you can be confident that the color is what it needs to be. Now, if you have questions about that or if you're wondering if your particular test is a candidate for that, again, call your test kit manufacturer and they can walk you through that. The last thing that I am going to mention is good light. Folks, we are in some how do I say it? Dirty, nasty, very unlit mechanical rooms, more than 50% of the time, I bet when you're out servicing. So a lot of times we cannot count on the light that is in the mechanical room. So what I say is bring your own lights. If you go to the show notes page, there's a test kit lamp on there that I use. It's a USB rechargeable LED light, and it hooks really nicely and and neat on your test kit, or you can have it stand on a table so you can titrate in very good light. And it's got a full spectrum bulb in it. So you really see some good color changes. It might mean that you've got to go outside, but maybe it's not an option to go outside. It might mean that you need to ask your customer to fix all the broken bulbs that are in the mechanical room. All that to say, you need good light because a lot of our tests rely on us being able to interpret one color change to another. So let's recap. You need to make sure you have a representative sample. You're truly testing the system water you think you're testing. You need to have a room temperature sample. You need to make sure you have good reagents, and then you need to make sure you have practices to keep your reagents in that good condition. There's always the option to add extra color indicator to your tests. And then finally, you need to have good light. So I hope this helps answer that question. And the last thing that I will mention is in working with water treaters, I've noticed that many of us will simply run a test because we've memorized the procedure. Folks, I have to tell you, there's just so much knowledge. There's a shift that happens when you go from just running task to task to task to truly understanding what that test is doing. Why are you using that certain reagent? How is that reagent reacting to that sample. Why are you getting one color change into another? When you understand those things, the test will start to talk to you. You'll realize when something doesn't make sense. So that's my last tip. Try to elevate your knowledge of the test. So now, truly, your test is a tool for you, giving you information, but, ensuring that you know how to interpret it. The next question is, what should be on a good service report? Well, I think it was one of my very first episodes, I dissected the service report. So I know it's been a while since we've spoken about the service report. So what are some of the things that should be on a service report to really make it complete? And I'm going to change the question. So good is kind of a nebulous question. You know, how do you make it good? Well, depending on the eye of the beholder, good can mean different things to different people. So I'm I'm going to change that just a little bit if the question supplier does not mind. And I'm going to answer it with what makes a complete service report. So here's how I look at a service report. One, it's the legal document that you leave behind that shows that you satisfied your contractual obligations. So I like to break these down into different sections. The first section, and this is in order, why are you there? Why are you at that location servicing that account? Is it regular contract service? Did the customer call you out? Was there an issue? Did you decide to do something on the last visit that required you to come back early for this visit? Always write down why you are there. Then you need to make sure that you note what you found when you got there on site. And uh, something that we always do in our company is we put our test kits down and we walk around the mechanical room. We walk around the plant and we just see what we see. We then note those observations. Now, during that walk around that tour, we're collecting samples, we're seeing things, we're talking with people. Now we're going to run our tests. Once we run our tests, we're gonna get some new information. And by doing that walkthrough, we already have ideas of what is happening to the system and those tests are gonna help us confirm or deny what we think is going on in the system. So then after we write down all of our testing information, we're gonna talk about what's right with the system, what's not right with the system, certain conditions that we found, and something that I like to encourage people to do is educate their customers on what the numbers mean when you run your tests. And typically if you have a range and most of our tests have a range between this and this, a lot of us are using electronic reports and that puts a green if it's good, a yellow if it's almost going out of range and a red if it's out of range. Well, when people see that yellow or red, they, they tend to panic. So it's a very good idea for you to explain whenever you have a test result out of range, first, what that range really means and then why it is out of range. Next, you need to explain how you're going to fix everything that you found that wasn't right with the system or how are you going to improve to get that account to the next level. This is where we need to prove value, or more importantly, ROI. So in addition to listing out what needs to be fixed, we need to say who's going to fix it. Now, maybe it's something that we did. Maybe a pump wasn't primed. So we prime the pump. Well, we need to talk about why the pump lost its prime. If there's an issue with a pump, if we need to replace the pump, any of that, that should be in the service report. If for some reason it just got some air in the head and we had to degas it, well, maybe we need to ask the person that's there on a regular basis to check that over the next couple of days to make sure it doesn't happen again. All that should be in a service report. Now, let's say they had to replace the pump. That's not something you can fix. That's something you need to quote and they need to approve. Put that in the service report. But do more than that. Put what the cost is for them not making a decision right now. Because if you can't run your program, then the valuable products that we are putting or need to be putting in the system might not be going in the system, and that's going to hurt their efficiency. So they realize that the issue is, do I need to spend X dollars to buy a pump? They additionally realize that I need to buy this pump and it's going to cost me this much a day if I don't do this, or this is the problem that's going to happen if I don't do this. This does a couple of things. It puts urgency on the customer to make a decision and it makes sure that the information that you know is transferred from you to them on that legal document. And when you come back and you fix those items or you've seen those items fixed, make sure you continue that trail and you close the loop and you say the pump was installed, we should be able to realize this value, whatever it is. So if you're not reviewing your past few months of service reports to continue the dialogue to make sure that they make sense report to report, you're probably missing out on some great opportunities to service the account better, and to better write your reports so the customer is getting more value from those reports. Before we moved to electronic service reports, I almost always got service reports signed. When we moved to electronic service reports, it became very easy to just send an email. So, Do you need to get a service report signed? Well, it really depends on the situation. Of course, it depends on your company policy. I will say the more severe information that you have to share that's when you need a signature. And I'm fairly certain every electronic service report supplier has a way to do a signature. So just keep that in mind. The more severe, the more you want to insist on a signature. And folks, I really think that that helps drive home how serious you're saying the problem is. So I hope that helps with those breakdowns of what should be on a complete service report. Another member of the Scaling Up Nation writes in and asks, Trace, how do you produce a podcast every single week? How do you have the time and how do you make sure that you get everything done and don't forget to do anything? Well, I love that you ask this question. I, you know, I get so many behind the scenes questions. I think it's really cool that the Scaling Up Nation is interested not only in listening to the podcast, but how we get all the information from the podcast, how we get a recording from Atlanta to all the way across the world and all the steps in between. So instead of answering that question today... I thought it would be really fun to bring the people that are involved in bringing you the Scaling Up H2O podcast each and every week on a special episode where we talk about how we get the podcast to you each and every Friday. So I'm going to leave you in suspense just for a little bit but I wanna ask you to tune back in when we're gonna have the people that do all the behind the scenes work and we will fully answer that question at that time. Our next question is, Trace, I was told you cannot sample from a sight glass on a boiler and expect it to be a good representative sample. So going back to our first question, the question further goes to say, What if you don't have any other choice but to sample from the boiler sight glass? Folks, I feel your pain. I have been there. Just think about how I answered the very first question. How do you ensure that you have a representative sample? Now, the reason the sight glass isn't bouncing around like the boiler is, is because there's two tubes that keep an equilibrium of water. So you're not really getting a good circulation through the sight glass. That's on purpose. It's not to have good representative water in there. It's to represent water level. So what does that mean? It means that if your only choice to test through a sight glass is you need to make sure you flush all the water out of it that you need to, to ensure you're getting boiler water and not sight glass water. Now, depending on the, how the boiler's set up, depending on how much water you have to flush, you very well could set off an alarm. So be prepared for that. Do you know how to reset it? if you set off an alarm, is that gonna trigger some other things in the plant? So you might need to have a conversation with the facility operator and talk about that and come up with a good procedure that you can get a good representative sample. Now, of course, there are better ways to sample a boiler, but if those aren't available to you, you have to make sure you have a representative sample. So I know people are sampling from sight glasses. Just know you have to make sure that you're confident that that's a good representative sample of what's in the boiler and not what's just floating around in the sight glass. Scaling Up Nation, this is a question that actually came from our mastermind group and it came from Eric Russo. Well, actually he started the theme and then some others actually started the question. Now, Eric Russo is a member of the mastermind. He's been on the podcast. He's asked a couple of questions. I think you've heard his voice on the show several times. And he is one of my original listeners. So, Eric, thank you for all of that. Well, the reason I'm bringing up Eric is Eric introduced me to my new favorite thing it's something called the Rocket Book. And here's the issue that the Rocket Book solves. I enjoy putting pen to paper. It's easy. You don't have to think too hard about it. It's always there and it's quick for me. But because I take all my notes on legal pads, I at the end of last year had 14 legal pads that were full of my notes for the year. And I have absolutely no way to go through and easily find something that I take notes on. So on the first episode of this year, I talked about how I am a huge fan of Outlook. Outlook does a great job with emails. There's so many tools that you can use to help manage your emails. You can do all this automatic stuff so you can really spend less time in your inbox. It's awesome for that. It's great as a task manager that episode, I explained how I prioritize my daily task. Outlook is great for that. And of course, Outlook is great for storing your contacts. Outlook is not good, in my opinion, for taking notes. And by the way, those are the four things that you need to do to truly stay organized in your day-to-day. You need to have a place for emails, messages, all that sort of stuff. Contacts, tasks. And notes from the day. Well, Eric introduced the mastermind to the rocket book. I got a rocket book, I started playing around with it, and it solved this issue. Now, you might be wondering what the heck is this rocket book? By the way, it was on Shark Tank. So you might have seen it on there. What it is, it is a reusable notebook. It is a notebook that you write on. Of course, what else would you do with a notebook? But you can erase it when you're done. So you just recycle the same notebook over and over and over again. But that's not all it does. It has some very cool features to it. As you write your notes, and you do have to make sure your handwriting looks pretty good, you'll notice that there are certain symbols on the bottom. So in conjunction with an app that you get with a notebook, you're going to take a picture of that page And depending on which symbol you check, it will send it to a predetermined area. Now, that might be your email. That might be a special file that you set up on a Google or Microsoft 365 account. You can set that up for anything. And here's what sold me on the Rocketbook when you take a picture of it and if you have the OCR which allows it to transfer what you wrote into searchable text wherever that file is if you go into a search menu and you put in the words that you are searching for you'll find it folks that solves the issue of my 14 legal pads last year i can't say enough good things about the rocket book If you want to learn more about the Rocketbook, it's on my show notes page. Uh, In fact, I've got an affiliate link for it. It's scalinguph2o.com forward slash Rocketbook. Eric, thank you so much for introducing me to this. Not only am I not going to have to use 14 legal pads this year because it is reusable, I can now find my notes when I need to go back and find them. Folks, I can't tell you how many notes I've taken at customers and I wasn't able to find them. So I had to go back there to retake the notes. Folks, it eliminates all that. So folks, you can hear in my voice, I'm very excited about the Rocketbook. I think it's a great productivity tool. And I was so excited when I started using it that that was my gift to everybody that was in the Rising Tide Mastermind. They all received a gift in December for the Rocketbook. And then Eric Russo was nice enough to come on a Zoom call and teach us how to use it. Folks, I just scratched the surface in what the Rocketbook can do and some of the tools and things that it has, but just the things I said, I I think you're getting excited about it. So with the Rocketbook, I started thinking, what are some other things that I really think are invaluable tools to me? So I mentioned this already, but a good test kit light. Sometimes we have to bring our own light. And when I go out in the field with other water treaters, I don't see that very often. So, if you want to see the light that I'm using, you can go to the show notes page. That's on there. Folks, I learned this from my dad. He always titrated in Erlenmeyer flasks. Those are the flasks that are thin up top and, are, and have that wide bottom, kind of the quintessential flask that you think of. Those are made for titrations. They're not made for measuring. That's what a graduated cylinder's for. You pour it into the Erlenmeyer flask but I love titrating in Erlenmeyer flask. My favorite is glass, but in a lot of the plants, we have to bring plastic in that scratch really easily, but you'll always find Erlenmeyer flask in my test kit. I get made fun that I'm old school, but I tell you, they work. They make titrations really easy. Uh, of course, the pin. When I talked about phosphates uh, a couple of years ago, one of the tools that I learned about was the pin. So you don't have to carry that huge UV converter around in your test kit. This actually runs on batteries. It's a great addition to the test kit. And then there's my digital titrator. The digital titrator allows me to simply spin a wheel. It injects micro drops of reagent and then I'm able to read the counter to get a more accurate number. It's also a lot faster for me to use that than it is for me to manually titrate or use burettes. So if you're still using burettes, save your back, save your trunk space, get digital titrators, and I think you will be glad that you did. Some of my other favorite things, of course, my Leatherman, that's my multi-tool that I carry everywhere. I always have a backup charger with me. You never know when you have an electronic device that's going to need to be charged and you don't have a good place to plug in. So I always carry a backup charger with me. My favorite cooking tool water treatment wise is the sous vide. The sous vide is uh, basically a circulating heated water bath. Again, all these things are gonna be on my show notes page. I mentioned a couple episodes ago that I recently put a Sense device on my house, and that's a device that measures the electricity and learns all of the users of electricity in your home, so you can better manage that. And as we know from Peter Drucker, anything that gets measured can get better. So we've actually cut a lot of electrical costs from our office. We cut a lot of the electrical costs from our house. And it makes it a game. It gamifies how much power you're using and it allows you to make a difference. And then the last thing, and folks, I didn't even know what this thing was until my wife asked for it. So my wife asked for an Oculus Quest 2 for Christmas. And how cool is that, that my wife wanted one of those? So we went to Disney last year and we went to a kiosk and they were demonstrating those and she saw that you could fight Darth Vader. She was sold instantly. Well, in addition to fighting Darth Vader, there's actually team games on there. And we actually use them at the company for team building. There's one game that's called Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes. And the person that wears the virtual headset is actually in this room and they have to defuse a bomb, but they don't know how to defuse it. And you have a printed manual that you give other members of the team. And the person that's seen the bomb has to communicate what they're seeing. And then the other people have the diffusing manual and they're talking the people through. Folks, this is a great exercise on communication. So there you go. Those are my top 10 favorite things. I hope you can do something with that. Like I said, a lot of these things I've I've just always had, and I can't imagine not having them. And then there's some things that are recent that have really changed the way I'm productive. Another Scaling Up H2O listener writes in and says that they really appreciated the financial conversation that I had with the Scaling Up Nation on episode 130. And that's where I was talking about an IRA and how... You need to make sure that you are paying yourself instead of just going out and spending. And they ask, can you please give us some more advice? And I would love to give you more advice. My expertise is in water treatment. I'll give you a couple things, but here's what my promise to the Scaling Up Nation is. I'm going to have a financial advisor on the show to talk about why you need to take advantage of your 401k. What's the cost if you don't? Do you have an IRA? Why do you need to get an IRA? What are the differences between the different IRAs? What percentage of your income should you be saving? How much should you have in savings? All that sort of stuff, we're going to be talking about the podcast. I'll also say that if you don't have somebody you trust as a financial advisor I really think you need to find one. So I urge you to get on that endeavor and try to find somebody that you can trust that can help navigate you through those decisions. Something that I was taught and it's really served me well is you need to look at the money that you get in three buckets. One is what you live. How much do you need to live on? The second bucket is how much do you need to save if something were to happen? And the last one is what is the money that you're going to give? Give to things that you believe in, charities, things that you want to help fund, all those things. What are you going to give to? A lot of people, they maybe don't give. I truly believe. That money is one of those things that if you treat it properly, if you do good with it, and by the way, money is a tool, money is never a destination. So if I can do something good with my money, that will come back to me. I might not realize how it's coming back to me, but I truly believe it always does. Now, somebody told me that those three buckets are great, but you can kind of tell what kind of person that the person is and the order that they give the money. So if someone is putting the first percentages in living, the next percentages into saving, and the last percentages into giving, that the analysis was that this person was more money-driven. The reverse of that, if we flip the first and the last one, if you change your mindset to, what can I do good with, with my resources? If I do that first, and then I save, and then what's left over, I live on, think about the difference that that would have. One, we wouldn't be purchasing things that we couldn't afford. And two, again, I truly believe when you put things out there, you're going to get those back. So the causes, the things that you believe in, set aside in your budget to use that money first, then save, and then the money that you need to live off. And by the way, I mentioned debt in there. I want you to consider anytime you go into debt for anything, do you really need that? So many people get into trouble because it's so easy to buy things that they can't pay for today. Well, folks, that might be a good decision. It might be a bad decision. My ask is that you think about the decision before you act on it. And if it is a good decision, fine. But if it's something you don't need, you just want right now, well, folks, if you're gonna want it a month later, maybe it's a good idea. So maybe not buy it right now if you're not sure and see how you feel about it later. So Nation, I'm going to have a financial advisor on a little later this year to answer the financial questions that I have received better to give you a roadmap to navigate those items. But I want to thank the individuals that have asked all those questions. It really makes me feel good that because I noticed that people were not saving for themselves, and I mentioned that on the podcast, so many people wanted to know more. So there's so many things out there that can help you financially that I want to make sure that you know what you can take advantage of. Well, Nation, every week we are teaming up with James McDonald, who's bringing us James's challenge. And James is making sure that we're working on something each and every week that's going to push us to the next level. Some are pretty easy, some might take some time to achieve. But if we do all of these, we would do 52 things to help ourselves get better over a year's time. Here's James with his next challenge.
1: Hello, Scaling Up Nation. James McDonald here for your next challenge, James's Challenge. The goal is as we proceed through the year 2021, the weekly challenges will help make you a better water treatment professional, drop by drop. Even if you cannot perform the challenge immediately, please plan for it, research it, or at least put some thought behind what the challenge is hoping to accomplish. James's Challenge of the Week is... Conduct an elution study on a water softener. A relatively easy way to troubleshoot a water softener is to observe its regeneration process and perform an elution study during the brine draw sequence. If your employer doesn't have an elution study procedure handy, it's easy enough to search online for one. Please consider sharing your experiences on LinkedIn, tagging it with hashtag JC21 and hashtag ScalingUpH20. I look forward to hearing about how it went.
0: James, thank you again for bringing us James's Challenge. Tune in next week where we'll have a brand new James's Challenge. And remember, share what you're doing on social media. That way we can all enjoy this together and keep up with how we are achieving these challenges. Folks, I hope you have a great rest of your week. I hope you stay safe. I hope you take care of each other. And I'll talk with you next week on Scaling Up H2O.